If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you'll love the 430 Movie, available wherever you listen to podcasts or at 430movie.com. Join us every week as we program exclusive fantasy theme weeks full of the movies you grew up on. This is not Richard Dreyfus, but if you want to travel into space with aliens, you should listen to the Inglorious Trexperts podcast, the ultimate Star Trek podcast for sci-fi fans with a life. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made. I am your host, Josh Miller. With me is my co-host, Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Hello. How you doing today, Steve? All good, man. Thank All you. All right. Uh, we are very happy to bring on our special guest for this episode, Mr. Adam Rifkin, who you may know from things such as his screenplays for Small Soldiers, for Mouse Hunt. He uh, directed the great film The Dark Backward, and most recently, the sadly, the swan song of the great Burt Reynolds, The Last Movie Star. Hello. Hi. Happy to be here. <laughs> um yeah, and we are here to talk today with Adam. We're going to kick things off with a discuss, discussion of Return of the Planet of the Apes. We're also going to discuss a little bit of He-Man, and then if we have time, some things after that. Um, but maybe just to kick things off to, uh, I think, both familiarize our audience with you, if they don't know that sure. well. But then also, I think it's nice to know the context of what your life was like at the time you started working on the Planet of the Apes movie. Of course. Uh, what year was that? Uh, that would have been... I think the screenplay we have is dated 88, but I yeah. imagine maybe started before that. No, that was about right. In 1988, the whole the whole story uh, began and ended in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it didn't drag out too long then. That's true. Um, no, so, okay, so, well, to give you a little bit of context, I, uh, I'm from Chicago, and I loved movies my whole life growing up, and I made movies with all my friends growing up, and all I ever wanted to do was move out to L.A. and make movies. And so I um, moved out to L.A. when I was 17, and I started right away pounding the pavement, trying to write scripts and find money to get movies made. And um, the, uh, the, it's hard to find money to get movies made. <laughs> I learned very quickly. Um, but I met up with a young producer at that time uh, who was working, uh, named Brad Wyman, and he was working for an old-timer uh, named Elliot Kastner. And Elliot Kastner had produced many classic films, um, Clint Eastwood films, uh, Marlon Brando films, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson films, uh, Paul Newman films, just classic films. And at the, t at the time I met him, he was cranking out lots of low-budget genre movies because home video was still relatively new as a business and there you the the market had not been so overly flooded uh that you know if you basically could make any movie that, you know any movie that was 90 minutes long and had a little bit of tna or a little bit of blood or both was a good piece of business for the home video market and that's why so many movies uh came out of that period of time um some of them good, most of them bad. But um, so I was 19 when Brad brought me in to meet Elliot. And uh, 
Were you in film school at the I, time? I had gotten into USC, and I went briefly to USC, but I dropped out of USC very after one year and just started, you know, because I figured out, for me, I'm not going to rag on film school for people. I think film school is great. But for me, I thought that, okay, you, you go to medical school, you go through the process of medical school, you come out the other side a, a doctor. But uh, for me, I felt that um, film school, you go through all the, trials and tribulations of film school and you come out a schmuck wanting to be a filmmaker <laughs> yeah. which is exactly what I was going in you know what I mean yeah. so and I had spent my whole uh, youth making movies my, on my own so where they were sort of starting in film school in terms of the teaching process I kind of felt like They're I like, had this is a medium shot yeah I kind of felt like I had done that already on my own you know and so rightly or wrongly you know, because I was very young and I had a lot of uh, hubris, you know, so I probably was, uh, uh, I probably acted too impulsively, but um, I dropped out and I just said, I'm just going to write scripts and knock on doors myself. And it's, it's hard to get money to get movies made. But I learned at that time, there's no magic to getting a movie made beyond that. You just, if you have the money to make a movie, you can make a movie. It's, it's that simple. And if you have a lot of money to make a movie, you can make a bigger movie. And if you have a small amount of money, you can make a small movie. But you can make a movie. And all I want to do is make a movie. So I wrote a movie. The first script I ever wrote was called The Dark Backward. And Brad Wyman got a hold of that script. And he brought it to his partner at the time, Cassian Elwes, who was a young producer as well. Uh, and they were both working for Elliot Kastner. Now, Cassian was Elliot's stepson. And Brad was a young producer who had met Elliot. And they were trying to find projects for Elliot to fund. Uh, and they got to produce them for Elliot. And so Brad brought in The Dark Backward to Elliot, and Elliot didn't like it at all because The Dark Backward's a very weird, dark yeah. film <laughs> about a stand-up comic with three arms. And uh, he said um, to me, I'll, I'll let you direct a movie, um, but it's got to be something that appeals to the kids. You know, he's like, a, like an old-timer kind of producer that you imagine the... the, the in, like in a movie, you'd cast him as a producer of a movie. You yeah. Know? Um, so Did he, he smoke said, a cigar. I don't remember if he actually smoked a cigar, but you'd ca I, in the character playing Elliot Kastner would have a cigar. Yeah, yeah. I'm picturing Michael Lerner from <laughs> right. Barton Fink. That's exactly right. So Elliot uh, said, uh, "I'll let you direct a movie, but it's got to be something for the kids. None of this weirdo crap, right? Uh, and for the and for the kids meant a teen." A movie that would have appealed to teens. Mm -hmm. right? So I, he said, do you have anything like that? I said, I actually do have something like that. I didn't. But I said, <laughs> let me bring it in. He said, bring it in tomorrow. I said, let me have till Monday because I want to I want to tweak Pick it up. Some typos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and I ran home and I wrote one, right? So that movie became my first movie. It was called Never on Tuesday. It was a teen comedy. Elliot funded it. Brad and Cassian produced it. And uh, it was just a little fun 80s teen, teen A comedy. Um, but we had some great cameos in it because Brad and Cassian knew at the time the Brat Pack, which were the biggest stars in Hollywood. So they convinced them to be in this little movie for us. So Charlie Sheen had a cameo in it and Nicolas Cage had a cameo in it and Emilio Estevez and Judd Nelson and Carrie Elwes, who's Cassian Elwes' brother. And uh, it turned out, you know, for my first film at 19 yeah. years old, wow. it was basically my film you school. You were probably younger than all those actors. I was. Yeah. I was the youngest person on the set. Yeah. I was the youngest person on the entire project, which everybody thought was really funny and gave me shit for Can I say shit? Can we? Yes. <laughs> okay. Everybody, everybody gave me shit for uh, every day, you know, but it, in, it, was, it was in good fun. So anyway, that movie got finished, and um, 
we we screened it for every distributor, um, and several of the distributors wanted to buy it. Among them, 20th Century Fox wanted to buy it, but ultimately it sold to Paramount, and that's a whole other story of what happened with the sale to Paramount. Um, but some of the other companies that had seen it liked it, and I got to meet with them about possibly doing other projects. So I met with the president of Fox, 20th Century Fox at that time, a guy named Craig Baumgarten, uh, and he had liked my film, and he said, what, do you want to, what would you want to do if you made a movie here? I said, I want to bring back the Planet of the Apes. That's what I want to do if I got to make a movie here. And refresh my memory, how long it had been since? It had been a long time since anybody took the franchise seriously at all. There had obviously been some successful films starting in the late 60s through the 70s. Now it was the 80s, and it was kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Planet of the Apes was a joke. I mean, they had done a bad television show. Too and bad television yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Spa- <laughs> Spaceballs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. Were, it, was, it was a joke <laughs> franchise, right? So nobody was taking it seriously. And I said, let me... Now, the word reboot did not exist, Mm -hmm. but basically what I was suggesting is let me reinvent the Planet of the Apes for you guys. And my pitch to them was that it was a sequel to the first movie. Let's pretend everything else didn't exist. Like the new Halloween. (laughs) Yeah, right. I said, let's pretend everything else didn't exist. And we and this is what I this is what I pitched to them. I said, "Okay, so you open the movie with footage from the original Planet of the Apes. Now, at this at this time, by the way, too, everybody was very familiar with the original Planet of the Apes because it showed on television all the time. Mm-hmm. So unlike now, where everything is so niche niche specific, where you know you know you don't necessarily you know the average person only sort of focuses on on what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. But at that time, there were very few television channels, and whatever was on the television channel, everybody watched everything that was on. Everybody had a mm-hmm. very uh, 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 eclectic, a uh, uh, very eclectic input. Yeah, of, I mean, you to know, some extent, everybody got all kinds of different things uh, all at once. So yeah, I, didn't, every- I didn't watch Mash a lot when I was eight because I loved. <laughs> Mash, the right, TV right. show, was right. on TV when I got home from school every single right, day. Right, so you'd see it. Yeah. it would, right. They would marathon Planet of the Apes at that time because yeah. most of us only had a handful of channels also right. at that right. time. Was so maybe, that was something that was, was common, the, the, yeah. the marathoning of Planet of the Apes and stuff. So anyway, so my pitch was this. We open with footage from the original Planet of the Apes, the end sequence where Charlton Heston suddenly realizes he's been on Earth the whole time and he's looking up at the Statue of Liberty, and he's screaming, you, you maniacs, you you blew it up, you know, damn you. <laughs> and uh, then you fade to black, right? And then you come up with a, uh, a, 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 a super that says 300 years later, right? And then you come up on Spartacus with apes. So now the apes have reached their Roman era, right? And the... And you just play just I said you literally do Spartacus where <laughs> the the uh, the orangutans are the Senate and the gorillas are the gla- gladiators and the chimps are the, uh, the, the 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 philosophers and the thinkers and and the slaves are the humans and a descendant of Taylor uh, leads a slave revolt. So you got the humans against the apes set in ancient Rome 
and I and then I pitched the trailer for the movie. I said, so so that's the concept of the movie, but here's the trailer of the movie, right? And I said, okay, so you open up on desert for as far as I can see, right? You know, uh, 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 Lord, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia right. style, right? And you just have uh, James Earl Jones hire him to say, you know. <laughs> They have been dormant for <laughs> thousands of years. And then you see a little dot appear on the horizon, and it's getting a little closer and closer. You know, they have fought wars, and there's a little closer and closer. They have da-da-da-da. You know, you, you write, you know, your flowery uh, narration. And then just as, as you're seeing who's coming, you, you see a, a, a lone figure on a horse draped in all kinds of scarves and cloth and you don't see what who they are and then but then right at the last moment you crane up as the horse rears and the narrator says and now they're back and then he pulls his scarf off his face and you reveal it's an ape and he blows into a ram's horn and then you crane up over him and you see thousands of of apes on horseback charging over the hill and uh, and then you just cut to you know Return of the Planet of the Apes coming this summer, <laughs> and awesome. and uh, Craig Baumgarten in the room said, "Okay, let's do it." Which was this is my first studio meeting in my yeah. life, right? Wow. You're like, "Wow, this this career is going to be easy." That's what I thought. I thought to myself, "I'm going to be a rich and famous movie maker at 21 <laughs> years old." So uh, I wrote the script, um, and they loved it. They had one note. I mean, you're a writer. I mean, how often does this happen? Here was their note. It's about 10 pages too long. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just sort of trim it down a little bit? Okay. Yeah. That was it. That was the note. Wow. We were opening production offices. We were starting to talk about casting. We were we were we were getting uh you know, uh, uh, of course uh Rick Baker was going to do the apes. Um Danny Elfman was going to do the score. As far as who was going to play the lead, the 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 offspring of uh, Charlton Heston, it was either going to be Tom Cruise or Charlie Sheen, and at that time they were both sort of neck and neck who was going to be the biggest star. Yeah. Wait, were you attached to direct? And I was going to be the director. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my pitch to why I should be the director in that first meeting was, I come from an independent film background and I can make this movie look big, for a price. You know, I'll write something that looks big, feels big, is cool. It reinvents the the franchise. And I can do all that for a fraction of what it would cost you to hire so and so. And he bought it for you know for whatever reason. And uh, <laughs> so everything was going incredibly smoothly until he, he as the head of the studio, got fired. Mm. And then everything changed. Uh, that's and so we have the script. Um, and the funny, the script open the script we have opens with your trailer pitch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I'm curious, um, the one main deviation is yeah. rather than skipping 300 years, mm-hmm. uh, now we meet Charlton Heston. Yes, yeah, so that it, well, there were several drafts, and and the draft it sounds like you have was not the first draft that was approved by the original president of the studio. There were there were several drafts that. Um, were developed when the new st- studio head came in. That so it didn't just immediately die. They'd started retooling There it. was a few months there where I did other drafts for the new regime that took it in a bunch of different directions. 
Um, and there were a couple scripts that I turned in where I gave them scripts with like multiple endings. Like I'd write the ending they wanted, and then I wrote the ending I wanted, and then I wrote the ending that I thought would be kind of an out, out you know, left field ending. Mm-hmm. You know, just to try and give them things that I, because I didn't feel that the, the, the new regime understood really or cared really what I thought was cool yeah. about bringing the, the franchise back. Um, I, I don't even really consider those drafts and that little period of additional development to be the ex- my, my Planet of the Apes experience. My Planet of the Apes experience died when Craig Baumgarten was fired from being the president of Fox. There, mm-hmm. was, there was a little fizzle with the next regime, but that was it. Now, as uh, the years went on, Oliver Stone um, became involved in his version of a reboot, and uh, James Cameron was going to do a version of... He was going to reboot it at one point. And, and before that was Chris Columbus. Chris Columbus was going to yeah. do it, and... Um, Schwarzenegger was attached. Unrelated yeah. to your script, yeah. this was just... Well, yes, technically, but, you know, every one of those drafts, whether they were aware of it or not, whether they read my drafts or not, or whether executives just mentioned things to them that they remembered from my drafts or not, there were things of mine in all those drafts, all the way up until the... There were things of mine in the in the Tim Burton draft. And I lobbied for credit because I felt there was enough in there, and since I was the first writer, that it was worth my throwing my hat in that arbitration ring. Yeah. I lost that arbitration. But there was stuff in that script that I can and did you know when you do an wga arbitration you point to where in your draft things are related to the shooting draft and stuff like that i pointed to a lot of different things that they that i felt they used from my drafts now of course it could have been coincidence yeah it could have just been similar ideas that naturally anybody would have thought of but because it was similar enough i felt it was worth arbitrating can you say what by any chance or i can't even remember right now to be honest with you but there were things yeah Steve, do you know what was the Oliver Stone one? Uh, I, only, I found very little. I mean, I, I just know it was Stone and the writer of The Road Warrior, Terry Hayes. And theirs, they were messing around at one point before Stone left to do Nixon. It was going to be about like time travel with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then. Um, Something I find particularly funny yeah. about Arnold, Arnold's going to go Apes back to Nixon. He's right. going to go back and <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger was supposed to go back in time. But the interesting thing was like he was going to do like the sequel. And then when they got away from Adam Rifkin, they wanted to do like a remake. They were just and I think that's when all the retooling just they couldn't figure it out because it's like, how do you remake that movie? And it seems like the route he was going was much smarter. And it seems like it pushed the franchise further versus going back and remaking it. And it just seems like. Chris Columbus became attached with Sam Hamm writing. Okay, they, he wrote Batman, right? Yeah, and they actually did tests of apes skiing down hills, <laughs> like because there was going to be a sequence where the apes were going to be hunting people in the snow. But that's as far as Chris Columbus's went. And then James Cameron came in, and Schwarzenegger wanted to still be a part of it. Stan Winston, not Stan Winston, came in. And that was an, James Cameron was going to be messing with time travel again, also another remake. And then eventually Burton came in with his version, and it was like twelve years between yours and yeah. Burton's, and yeah. like you could have totally made yours back in ninety, and they could have still remade it. I know in well, two thousand. Mine was applicable 
if you if you want to talk about you know zeitgeist stuff, mine would have been applicable at that time because of people's familiarity with the originals. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the new Planet of the Apes movies a lot. The new sort of re- the newest the, uh-huh. the newest yeah. reboots that trilogy. I like them a lot, but they of course don't in any way relate to the original uh, movies, and I think that's smart of them to have gone the way that they're going because I don't think there's a collective sort of except for you know older movie fans Mm -hmm. I think the average movie goer doesn't really have the same affection or affinity for the original films that they did when I was back in 88 when I was involved you know yeah what toys um, what with Rick Baker's involvement like how far did he get with you? It was all very, uh, it was all initial steps. You know, everybody was being contacted. Everybody was being uh, sent the script. Everybody was saying, yeah, that sounds great. Everything was looking really promising. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, we were talking to everybody's reps and things were moving very quickly. I mean, the movie was supposed to go into production very quickly. And and, and also one of the reasons also that I, I bring up Cassian Elvis is Cassian Elvis was the producer, so uh, uh, you know, so Cassian was one of the producers of Never on Tuesday, which was my first film that Elliot produced. And Cassian is just as a uh, to remind you, Cassian was Elliot's stepson, and so Cassian is the one who was the producer on that version of Planet of the Apes that I was involved with. Um, and you know, Cassian is producing tons of movies. Uh, he he produced Mudbound last year, and he, he produces all big Oscar kind of movies. Yeah. Well, I was just curious. Oh, sorry. I was just. Or, I was just curious. If, did you ever have a conversation with Rick Baker? Not about, personally okay. at that time about it. Not personally. I'm just curious what his since he ended up doing the Burton one. I'm just kind of yeah. curious mm-hmm. uh, if any of his ideas for how to do the makeup held over. I don't know. But, I don't know. You know, our our version never got that far. Yeah. We never even started talking about ideas or anything. It was. It all moved very quickly. They loved the script. Hone it down ten pages. We're going to open product, pre-production offices. I had my production off. I had my office. I was going in there. We were making lists, casting lists. We were making music, score, you know, lists of composers, lists of, you know, obviously Rick Baker was the only one on his list. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we were really starting to figure out how to put the pieces together. And then we get, and it, it was a real fast-moving train. I mean, if, if uh, Craig Baumgarten had been fired a month later, the train would have had would have already been left uh, mm-hmm. already would have left the station and they wouldn't have been able to slow it down you know so he got fired right at the time when it was possible to just nix the whole thing that's rough <laughs> but hey that's hollywood you yeah. know it was a life yeah. lesson it was a life lesson and and you know what it was a great experience and it got me in the writers guild and it was a very public gig to have gotten mm-hmm. i mean i so how old were you 21 i was 21 and and it was written about in not only the trades mm-hmm. you know variety and stuff but it was written about in you know there's a lot of film magazines at that time it was written about in film magazines i i'm you know i, I i've never been famous but what i'm saying is i was i it was known that i was doing a planet of the apes reimagining and that was ex- and i was able to cash in on that in on other uh, uh, I- on other opportunities you know when that one went away yeah 
Well, to, to go back to apes, like you said, had the Spartacus type thing. Can you talk about there was like gladiator, glad, gladiator type sequences? Do you remember any of that yes, stuff? Yes, absolutely. I had the, the the lead character fighting this giant gorilla in the uh, gladiator ring named the Monolith. I think is the character's <laughs> name, and it was a big action scene. It was a big gladiator. It was a, you know I was obsessed with Spartacus the movie, and I really wanted to do a real sword and sandals movie with apes. So I I had all those ancient Roman movie tropes, mm-hmm. you know, like the the you know where the you know where Caesar is uh you know Caesar rep- character, you know, I, I'm not talking about the Planet of the Apes Caesar. Yeah. I'm talking about the actual Julius Caesar type character, you know, uh giving his speeches on the ledge of his palace and hordes of Romans are cheering and uh um, and the gladiator fights and the giant statues being erected in his honor and stuff like that. I, I had all those tropes and the slave revolt and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, it was, it's really cool because it's like part like Ben-Hur, Spartacus, but it also has this post-apocalyptic feel because it's also New York. Yeah. You know, and New York crumbling. And, yeah, and there's the, and there's the, um, the subway stations underground that they hide out in a lot and stuff. And plus... With all this gladiator stuff, the apes still have machine guns and everything. Right. So it's and they a, also had, if I remember correctly, because it was, you know, right there in the middle of the Cold War. So I think there was like, <laughs> I think they had like missiles and stuff. Yeah. I think they had atomic weaponry, if I remember correctly. Oh, man, it was a, yeah, it's a great merge of... <laughs> it was fun. It would have been a fun movie to make. And it, yeah. got me, it got me a lot of gigs that were really exciting gigs, you know, and so... Um, I have no regrets. I, I, I would have loved to have made it, but the fact that it didn't happen is just the way it goes in Hollywood, and so many good things came of it regardless that I'm, I'm very lucky to have been a part of it. And my story and my involvement and the whole story of the Planet of the Apes version that didn't get made is better told in a book called uh, Tales from Development Hell. There's a and this is about all kinds of mo- uh, movies that never got made. It's a great book, and there's a whole chapter devoted to the Planet of the Apes that never was, and it talks about the other versions too. Actually, that kind of leads directly to something I know Steve and I were curious about. Um, Steve dug up when he was looking into the apes and yeah. other things. He found some news pieces about I couldn't I don't know if it was a book or a magazine you were going to edit called Hollywood's Greatest Unmade Movies. So there was a there was a magazine at the time that was very popular. I don't know if it still exists in magazine form or not. Called Fade In magazine, and it was you know in that same vein as Premiere and uh, 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 Film Comment and American Film and all these kind of magazines. Um, and it focused a lot on filmmakers and writers, and it was a great magazine. Audrey Kelly was the uh, brains publisher behind it and she and I had this idea because we talked about all the great movies that you know all the great scripts that are mm-hmm. out there that have never been made every writer has unmade scripts that are fabulous scripts uh, that just have never for whatever reason for whatever host of reasons <laughs> never saw the light of day and this was before the blacklist right this, I don't know when the blacklist started but this was this was a while ago. This must have been 89? I have 99. It was announced in 99. Oh, 99. Okay. Well, long, longer than I... No, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Because it would have been around Detroit Rock City time. I get it. Okay. 
So, um, right, because I did a thing for her about Detroit Rock City, and then in getting to know her, we came up with this idea. And we were going to do the, the greatest movies never made, or whatever we decided we were going to call it. And there are legendary movies that almost got made that never got made, like Kubrick's Napoleon, for example, is mm-hmm. legendary. But she knew every big writer because of her magazine. So we decided let's contact every big writer of every big movie and see what is that one script of theirs that they know in their bones is a great movie that never happened that should still happen that is viable. And everybody said, oh, this one of mine or that one of mine. Or, there were so many to choose from. So we were going to publish them like uh, uh, we were going to use her magazine publisher, the uh, printer and distributor to publish each one in paperback form the covers were going to be the movie posters if the movie had been made, you know, sort of imagining what the movie poster would be like. And then if these if these published scripts ever, as a result, got, you know, optioned or made, then we'd all be involved in producing them. Yeah. And it would have been great. <laughs> but ultimately it never happened, but it would have been cool. It ironically became its own project. Yeah, never made. that's right. <laughs> the irony. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's nice to keep kind of tracking contextually because we're going to jump sure. a little forward to He-Man. Um, and I think one thing that's funny thinking about all these unmade movies, I do think there's a difference between like blacklist scripts, scripts that just haven't been produced, like yeah. spec scripts yeah. and projects that were going to happen. Of course. Like Return of the Plays and yeah. don't. Um, but- once you kind of, as you noted, that movie helped launch you up yes, uh, to like legitimate um, Hollywood gigs. Yes. But that almost opens you up to even more now movies that kind of didn't happen. Um, obviously, don't list off everything, but just kind of like, we're going to skip forward to He-Man. Kind of sure. say, uh, I feel you had a pretty interesting arc through the 90s of kind of blowing up again by the very end of it. Yeah, I got very lucky. Um, you know, I've always seen myself first and foremost as an independent filmmaker. Um, and I'm always, uh, you know, running around with my hat in my hand trying to get people to give money to get these independent movies made. Um, and at the same time, I always have written studio movies that I always had hoped I would sell because I thought that could open doors for me to get more independent films made. And one thing led to another. And the doors blew open for me, luckily, when I wrote this one spec script called Mouse Hunt that sold in a big bidding war and got made by DreamWorks and became a successful film. And this is like right when they were starting, too, this right? Was, this was DreamWorks' first script they bought. Okay. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and it was the third movie they made. And so when that sold and then got greenlit, suddenly I was on a different list. Than, well, I'd never been on any lists. Prior. <laughs> Suddenly I was on the list of writers for family movies, you know. Um, even though I had made all kinds of weirdo, dark, independent movies, that was sort of off everybody's radar who was you know, looking for writers of tentpole family movies. Well, and, and could you kind of feel, because I imagine part of the difference is you went from being a guy who you were maybe, after other people said no, they got down to you, to now you were maybe the first person yeah, they contacted. Yeah, I was, I was high on that, on that list during that time. Yeah. Right? So I got a lot of really cool projects um, that came my way that I got to, you know, very rarely, even then, did I have any situations... 
where someone just said, here's the job. Mm-hmm. It did happen a few times. Like small soldiers happen that way. Uh, DreamWorks bought Mouse Hunt. They greenlit Mouse Hunt. Once it started, Steven Spielberg said to me, do you want to write small soldiers and pitch me the idea? <laughs> if you want to, if you want to do it, it's yours. And I said, let me, let me think about that. Uh, yes, I would like to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, so that, that happened that way. And then another project happened that way at Disney called Posse. Speaking of a Stan Winston, um, Posse was a movie that I was just hired to write. Stan Winston was the producer and was going to provide the special makeup effects. And the executive at the time was a, 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 a guy named Todd Garner, who's a big producer now. And the two of them just said, let's hire Adam Rifkin for this. And they said, you're hired. And I said, okay. So that's, I mean, that's rare though. That's very rare. Um, but other times situations would come up and I'd get an opportunity to throw my uh, hat in the ring. I'm using a lot of hat metaphors. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> that. Uh, for, uh, to see if I could get particular projects. So Where's Waldo? Um, the producer of Mouse Hunt said, hey, we just obtained the rights to Where's Waldo. If you're interested, see if you can come up with a take. And if we all agree that that's a good take, let's go pitch it. So that happened, and Paramount bought it, and Nickelodeon Movies bought it, right? And that was fun. And was, uh, what, what was the premise of the Waldo movie? Because that's one of those interesting adaptations of a thing that has absolutely no story well, whatsoever. My, my story was, you know, there are other characters in the Waldo world that people may, might not have paid attention to but they're there so waldo has a nemesis named Oddlaw, which is waldo spelled backwards there's a, a wait this is real this is real okay there's a white there's a mr whitebeard character who's kind of like a long white bearded dude there's um there's a girl wenda who's his sort of female counterpart so i took all those characters that existed and i created this idea that what if mr whitebeard had this factory of inventions and all these crazy contraptions and what if um, Waldo is the the janitor at the factory? He's the lowest guy on the totem pole, but he's actually the smartest, most creative guy working there. But he's just so happy with his you know current situation, he he's, he doesn't feel the need to climb any ladders. He'll just fix uh, equations on blackboards quietly, secretly, or he'll he'll drop a suggestion in the suggestion box anonymously, and then these will be their big you know projects. And uh, Whitebeard doesn't know that Waldo is the one behind this. Oddlaw, who works at the at the factory as well, who is a social and 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 uh, corporate climber, and is trying to kiss uh, Whitebeard's ass at every time, is always trying to take credit for Waldo's inventions. And Whitebeard is working on a time machine that Oddlaw sees dollar signs in his eyes that he's going to sell it to Whitebeard's competitors. Right, so one night, Oddlaw sneaks into the factory to steal the time machine, uh, and Waldo is there cleaning up and sees this happening and tries to stop him. And in doing so, the time machine opens up a porthole in time, and Whitebeard and Waldo and Waldo's dog Woof all get sucked into a wormhole in time. And so now, uh, Waldo, Oddlaw, and Woof are thrust into all these different historical. Uh, and fanciful periods of time and space that are all 
uh, really crowded, like the building of the pyramids or Woodstock or, you know, uh, situations that are really crowded. And Adlo's trying to still steal the invention and Waldo's trying to, uh, and the battery's running down and they have to figure out a way to charge the battery in all these other times that this technology doesn't exist. And it's just this like chase through time before the battery dies, you know? So they bought it and uh, and that was fun. Um, Do you know why that one didn't move forward? I, I do. Some, some of these stories, some of these stories, I can't really tell okay. because it, it 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 disparages somebody. Yeah, no. I'll just say this: Where's Waldo? Was a greenlit movie at Paramount, and it was going to be a big budget, big movie that they had big high hopes for as a big franchise kind of movie. And somebody involved uh, made a decision that turned it from a go movie back into a development deal, and then it just it just kind of went down a black hole of development hell into yeah. obscurity. And then by the time it was back on its feet again, the administration changed, and and it didn't happen. It was sad, and it was truly human error that brought that plane down. I mean, that was legitimate human error, uh, slow motion uh, uh, plane crash. So that was this, that was a sad story. Um, but that's, I mean, but anyway. So you know, moving forward, moving yeah. forward. So then, uh, uh, prior to Waldo, is when Jumanji Two was an opportunity, and I pitched my take on. You know, I knew that it was an open writing assignment. They were looking for something for Jumanji Two. I pitched my take on Jumanji 2, and I got that job. That version of Jumanji 2 never got made. But that happens all the time. People who are, as you know, who are writers in Hollywood, write a lot of movies that never get made. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some of them do. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that the ones that didn't get made were the ones that weren't good, and the ones that do get made are the ones (laughs) that are good. It just is the way it works sometimes. Well, and to that point, something that we talked about before we started rolling here that I think is harder to perceive when you're not in the industry yeah. is that uh, film journalists, that's a job like anything else. Sure. They usually have a certain number of articles need to write sure. every day. So sometimes a lot of projects that get reported as happening or casting decisions mm-hmm. aren't anything, for example, being we thought you had written a Toxic Avenger movie. Right, a right. big budget one of all things. Well, that yeah. was something that was that we were hoping would happen, but it didn't happen. I mean, I, I knew uh, Lloyd Kaufman for a long time, and when I became a quote-unquote hot writer, uh, he and I talked about, again, before the word reboot existed, talked about reimagining a big version of Toxic Avenger. And it really never got beyond us talking about it and dreaming about it. Um, And I don't know who wrote about it or why, but I guess it did get written about. I just recently (laughs) found out. Um, But it never really, (coughs) excuse me, it never really evolved beyond just talking about it. You know, we just really wanted it to happen and we... I might have written a like a page treatment. I might have, if I remember correctly or not. I don't know, but it, nothing ever came of it at that time. But that was going to be like kind of a proper mainstream. Oh, that was going to be like yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about it as like a big studio movie, which is being done right now, by the way. Somebody's doing it. I forget who. Huh. 
Well, but somebody is rebooting Toxic Avenger right now on a that, large scale. Because at that time, they had a video game for Sega Genesis, Toxic Crusaders, the cartoon. Yeah. And it says, it was Hollywood Reporter reported it, uh, Trauma Toxic oozes to Rifkin for big budget. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> so, well, yeah. you know what's funny about it? Here's what's hilarious. Every single person in Hollywood knows that most of what you read in the trades is BS, yet somehow they still believe it when they read it. I mean, because they, they've all planted fake stories. Because they all, you know, you try to plan a, you plan a fake story to try and create some buzz and then hope that that buzz turns your fake story into a real story, right? So that's probably what happened. I don't remember, but maybe Lloyd Kaufman placed that story or something. I don't remember. <laughs> but um, everybody knows that everybody does that. And then everybody else who reads it goes, oh, but this I just read this. It's real. So I don't know. It's just funny to me. It just still happens that way. Well, and speaking of buzz, another thing we were talking about before the mics were rolling to segue into then the other movie we kind of wanted to close out with. Uh, we were talking beforehand for our, our Listeners who don't know, uh, my writing partner Pat and I wrote the new Sonic the Hedgehog movie, and I was saying Which how that was going to be huge. Hopefully, <laughs> knock on wood. Uh, but I was talking about how that was our first experience with working on something that people actually cared about, even before it came out, yeah. and angry internet chatter. And you were saying He Man was really the only time that's happened to you. Yes. Um, now, when I was hired to write Planet of the Apes, there was no internet. In a, uh, nobody, I mean, it did not exist. I'm sure there was angry chatter, but it was just between nerds at right. home. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So the the first time I had ever been hired for a project in the uh, that that could potentially um, stir controversy in the fan community during the internet age was when I was hired to write He Man and the Masters of the Universe, uh, and. I it was kind of off my radar uh, the, the the idea that when you get hired to write something, a lot of people have <laughs> really strong opinions about it um, right off the bat. So when I I lobbied for that job hard, I really wanted to write that movie. I knew it was available at Fox and I and it was being directed by um, John Wu and it was being produced by Wu and his producing partner Terrence Chang. Was what year was this? Was this before or after Hulk? It, it Do you was, know? Does it say what year? It, it was announced in twenty in two thousand four. Okay. Okay. That makes sounds about right. So um I really wanted that gig and I met with them many, many, many times. A lot of writers wanted that gig. And I just was relentless. If they didn't like one take, I I and, and by the way, I'll tell you this too. When I first was starting out and I was going up for big writing jobs, the idea of writing a treatment for free to get a writing job was unheard of. People mm -hmm. just did not do it. They, you, you, would, you would go in and you'd tell your ideas, and they were pretty sparse ideas. And the studio exec would either get where you're going, get sort of what you're talking about, and hire you, or they wouldn't, and they wouldn't hire you. I, pretty early on, and I'm sure others were doing it as well. I mean, I can't say that I invented it, but I, pretty early on, um, started writing treatments to get jobs. Because usually you get the job, then you start writing yeah. something um, in those days. So I started writing treatments early on to get the gigs. And in a way, that kind of put me ahead of a lot of other writers who would just 
who were incensed at the idea of doing any free work before they have the job. Mm -hmm. But I just, because I write fast and I really wanted some jobs and I have no life, (laughs) I, I would just bang out these treatments of my take and I would submit them with my pitch, you know, I'd leave them behind or I'd send them before I go in the room or whatever. So with with uh, he, uh, He-Man, I wrote treatment after treatment after treatment. And if they didn't like one, I submitted another. And if they didn't like one, I submitted another. And at one point, I remember I I had heard that it was down to like a few people. This, this process, I kid you not, lasted eight months. I believe it. Eight months. And... Uh... I'm just curious uh, why you wanted it so bad. Was it just, it was a good gig? Did you see the potential? I saw the potential. I thought it was going to be huge. First of all, I'm not going to tell you that I played with the toys because I did not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I'm, I was well aware of the uh, franchise and the characters. And I thought it was really a, a, a part of pop culture. It, it, it was, it was a part of a permanent part of, pop culture the pop culture pantheon Mm -hmm. and i wanted to be a part of it um and so uh i the the what got me over the edge what actually cinched the job for me is i took it upon myself to then submit to them a beat outline of the entire script i beat it every scene (laughs) of the entire script i don't even know if they read it but they i guess appreciated my enthusiasm and so eventually i got the job and um it was a really good gig, and working with uh, John Woo and Terrence Chang was really great. And I think the movie would have been fabulous. Ultimately, I'll tell you why it didn't get made. At the time, um, Fox owned two properties that w- that were of a fantasy-style genre. He-Man was one of them. And Aragon was the other one. And that was the based on that dragon right. book. Yeah, that's the exactly dragon right. Writers, so they're both sort of so they're both sort of yeah. fantasy mm-hmm. uh, uh, properties. So they debated which to green light first, and it was decided that they would green light Aragon first, and then uh, th- then He Man would be second, and Aragon didn't perform. Rightly or wrongly, I actually never even saw it, so I, I can't say. Um, but but Aragon was a disappointment financially for them, and as a result, they felt that fantasy was not viable for them, and they let the rights revert back to Mattel, and that was that. It's a it's a it's a shame because it, yeah, then I guess Joel Silver took it from there. And yeah, to this, actually, yeah, to this day, they're still trying to make the movie. Well, you, which yeah. is, Steve sent me this great little list that I just think is fascinating glimpse into how these big properties function. So is, mm-hmm. there was the Dolph Lundgren movie sure. in 1987, yeah. sure. and it seems like it sat mostly dormant till yeah. you were working on it in well, 2007. Well, well, really quick, Albert Pune was going to do the sequel. Oh, Masters of the, the Universe Part Two, and, and then didn't make any money, yeah, so. Dolph didn't want to be in it. They recast it, and then they turned it all the sets into Cyborg, and then and then <laughs> wow. it lay dormant until Rifkin came involved. But then, involved. so that was 2007, and yeah. then 2009, uh, John Stevenson, who did Kung Fu Panda, was going to direct a script written by Justin Marks and Evan Daughtry. Um, then that didn't happen. 2010. Um, the guys who did Predators were going to mm-hmm. do it. That didn't happen. 2012, um, 
Richard Work, who did The Equalizer, was going to do one. That didn't happen. 2013, Terry Rossio, one half of the Elliot and Rossio super team, uh, we're going to do it. That didn't happen. 2014, um, Jeff Wadlow, who wrote Kick-Ass 2, was going to do it. That didn't happen. 2015, Christopher Yost, who did Thor Ragnarok, was attached to do it. That didn't happen. 2016, McGee was going to do it. That didn't happen. 2018, David Goyer was going to do it. Didn't happen. Also in 2018, the Knee Brothers were going to direct it. That didn't happen. And who knows who's attached to it now. Yeah, and what's so funny, too, is that it keeps changing titles. It went from, like, He-Man to Masters of the Universe to Grayskull back to Masters of the Universe, like, every time. And you <laughs> Writer but, came in. By like the way, I love the gray skull where it's like, this yeah. is going to be like the dark. Yeah. <laughs> they just keep changing. Right. Yeah, it's Well, mine insane. was called He Man and the Masters of the Universe. <laughs> yeah. That's what mine was called. <laughs> um, well, I think this is a good place to write it or to wrap things up. Thank you to our guest, Mr. Adam Rifkin. Thank yes. you. This was fun. I can't believe this much time went by so fast. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you can follow Best Movies Never Made by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like, if you like what you hear, uh, please rate us five stars. Subscribe today to make sure you automatically get every new episode when it is available. And while you're at it, subscribe to our sister podcast, The 430 Movie, in which a panel of filmmakers curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies every Friday and inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, available every Saturday night. And finally, a very special thanks to producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman, sound engineer Bill Ritter, and everyone here at Electric Surge Network for making this show possible. So this is Josh and Stephen Scarlatta saying until next time, we won't see you at the movies. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.